everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Paul Johnson, and we are The Last Nighters. You can find us on the Liberty Movement's YouTube channel. You can also find this episode on Ridley Scott's unrated director's cut of Robin Hood starring Russell Crowe at lastnighters.com slash 171. Now, this is our tax day episode. The uh, the dreaded April 15th is right around the corner. And uh, I was speaking with my tax accountant the other day, and apparently because of changes due to the new administration, that occurred at in uh, late December, and then also again, I think in February, they've pushed the due date to May, but we're still going with the traditional day, and so we're of course talking about the Robin Hood of taking from the tax collector and giving back to the community that it's stolen from. And our guest is Mike T of the Battle for Liberty podcast. It's been a podcast that's been on hiatus for a few years now, but it was really well done, and uh, he's a good guy. He actually had us on, Robert and I on. Uh, years ago, and I can't believe he continued the show after that. I, if, if it were me, I would have cut it out uh, right after he and I were on, as that would have been, you know, a, ending a, it on a high point. note. Ending yeah. on a high, well, high note, yes. But welcome back, Mike. Uh, we uh, we've been talking about doing this show with you for a very long time, like two or three years, and we finally have got it together. So, um, one question I have to you is. Why did you bring this up a couple of years ago? And what do you got planned for the future? Do you have any other, do you have, do you have a, a show in mind that you want to get back out there or um, like how, how are you preparing for the economic collapse or <laughs> are you uh, planning on uh, doing anything to promote Liberty other than the, the non-masking ways, which I, uh, we were talking about in the pre-show bonus content, which I totally applaud. I think that's a very bold move. It's it's a bolder move than I actually want to do because I'm like, just leave me alone, people. Don't fuck, don't fucking mess with me. I'll wear your, your fucking mask like way out here. You know, like I don't know if people can see this video. It's like so loose. But uh anyway, welcome back, Mike. This is like the most ham-fisted intro I've ever done. Uh, but thanks for coming back. Wow, yeah, a lot of questions there. First of all, it's great to be here. Uh, really appreciative of uh the invite. And okay, so you asked a whole bunch of questions there. Let me see if I can get to all of them. Um, the first one was, why did I pick this movie? Well, I picked it because a long time ago when I watched it, my, my wife and I, before we were married, actually saw this in the movie theater and uh, we watched it. And at the time, both of us could be described as your typical big R Republican types. And uh, it was one of those moments where we watched the movie and we left the theater and we kind of looked at each other and said, does Hollywood know that they just made that movie? Like, do they understand the message that they just sent with that movie? Um, so this was, you know, pretty early in the genesis of, of my, my turn away from, you know, big R Republicanism, which was a, a, a form of minarchism over towards uh, a more anarchist uh, point of view. And it was amazing to me that Hollywood, especially the likes of, you know, Russell Crowe and some of the other big names that are in this movie, uh, unknowingly, I believe, sent the message that, you know, the government is the one that steals from you. And contrary to the caricature of Robin Hood, as we've come to know him, uh, stealing from the evil rich and giving to the poor, really, in this movie, what Robin Hood did was uh, steal back the tax money that was stolen from the common citizenry. Uh, and so that was, uh, that struck me even, even back, you know, over a decade ago when this movie was in theaters. And so later in life, when I started a podcast about anarchy and voluntarism and other such political philosophy, 
and then learned of your show uh, uh, addressing these topics through movie reviews, well, it was a natural. So, yeah. So that was question number one. I don't remember what the other questions were. Oh, am <laughs> I? How am I? Do I have anything upcoming? No, I don't. I have. Uh, I have five children, all under the age of seven. This is why I no longer podcast. I, I would love to continue doing it. I just don't have the time. I have a job where I travel around the country about 90% I'm on the road. Uh, and with five children at home, uh, there's literally no time. Uh, I had to I had to schedule this podcasting time as one of my kind of uh, you know guy nights. And I'm very happy to do it. Thrilled to be here. Uh, but I, the amount of time I was putting into podcasting was really starting to take away from my ability to properly pay attention to my wife and my children. And I, at the, I just had to make the decision that I couldn't do that anymore. So, um, when my kids grow up, oh boy, would I love to get back into podcasting, but we'll just have to see where my life is then. Yeah. I, I, I feel you there. My, my kids get sad when it's a Tuesday night or, or whenever we, we do a podcast. Cause like, Oh, we're going to miss my dad hug and, and all this. And so tonight I was like, okay guys, so here's your dad hug now at, you know, five fifty. And the good news is I don't have to do my next show until next Thursday. So there's like nine days before I do the next one. But um, I think that this is just a, a, a testament to time preference, right? Because you're investing now in raising your kids so that instead of one podcast, now there's going to be five 20 years from now. There'll be five anarchist podcasts. That's right. That's, that's, the, that's, the, ho- that's the hope, right? Uh, yeah. And I think, I think I could either have a job where I travel or I could podcast, but I can't do both. Uh, and you know, so right now it's not, you know, honestly, I'd pick podcasting if it would bring in the money to support the family, but it doesn't spoiler alert. Right. Um, so I, I travel for my job to take care of my family. And when I do get home, I have precious little time and I need to spend it with my family. So I don't do the podcast anymore as much as I loved it, it. It really was a joy to do it. Yeah, well, I thought that you did a great job. And uh, during our pre-show content, which is available for our Patreon supporters, go to lastnarrators.com slash Patreon. We actually get into some of the content that you covered extensively in your show. And we talked about the Bill of Rights and whether it applies to the individual states or not. We had a little bit of a back and forth on that. And uh, I think that people will find that interesting. Granted, uh, I think that you can look within the, the argument, within the constraints, and see it one way. And then the other way is, well, let's just not accept those constraints and see it a totally different way. And I think that we all agree uh, in both of those regards. So if, if people, I'm, I'm just leaving teasers out here. Go to lastnarrows.com, says Patreon. People can check that out. It's nearly an hour of just great bonus content. It's going to be way better than the show here. Pretty sure. <laughs> it was pretty great. Go go to uh, go to his site he just mentioned and become a, pa- a patron. Yeah. Ringing endorsement. Thank you. Th- thanks. All right. I'm great Thank at you. this. We'll give you a kickback. I'm a little out of practice. (laughs) All right. So um, one of the things we do to make this a little bit easier is we start off with a Google description. That helps us kick off what we're going to be discussing. So uh, here we are with the old Google description. It is Robin Hood, a 2010 film by Ridley Scott. Now, the regular version is PG-13, but the uh, extended unrated cut is not rated or un- is not rated so it's like r plus it's like intense there's more blood and more violence and more gore uh this of course stars russell crowe and C- kate blanchett and william hurt uh, among others 
and I uh, got a 6.6 on IMDb, 43% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Voodoo gave it 4.2 out of 5, and on Google, 84% of Google users liked it. Now, these reviews are probably related to the theatrical cut, which I did not watch, and is probably a little bit less coherent. Uh, but even this um, more fuller version that, that Robert and I watched, I'm not sure which one you saw, Mike, uh, there's a lot going on, and it's, it is confusing. There's so many moving pieces. But the description is, after the death of Richard the Lionhearted, a skilled archer named Robin Longstride, played by Russell Crowe, travels to Nottingham, where villagers suffer under a spotic sheriff and crippling taxation. He meets and falls in love with a spirited widow, Marion, played by Kate Blanchett. Although she is skeptical of his motives, hoping to win her heart and save the village, Robin gathers a band of warriors to fight corruption in Nottingham, little knowing that they soon will soon be fighting to save England itself. This came out on May 14th, 2010, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, had a box office of $321.7 million on a budget of 135, which means it probably about broke even when you consider all the marketing and other things that go into these things. Um, but it's it's one of those movies that, Robert, I think I don't remember uh, very much about this movie back, in the, back when it came out. And so... Um, it didn't really seem to have a lasting impression, but I'm, I'm curious what your take is on the Google, 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 you Google oh, yeah. description and uh, your opening salvo, please. Well, do we know how much the director's cut added like time wise? You have any idea? Uh, it was probably 10 to 12 minutes, I think. Sort really? of yeah. Okay. Cause it did seem quite, oh, wait, wait, I've got it here. I've got it here. Runtime 140 minutes, uh, and then 131 minutes and then 156 for the director's cut. Okay, so 16, 15 more minutes, right? Something like that. Okay, so I I didn't see a whole lot more gore and violence there than I recall. But, uh, I mean, this, this movie very much felt like Ridley Scott wanted to make a medieval epic. And he took as inspiration the story of Robin Hood and told an origin story. It is definitely not, like you said, it's not the material covered in other Robin Hood stories where the E Sheriff of Nottingham, even in your description though, it mentions the Sheriff of Nottingham. He's barely in this film. He, he talks to Maid Marion a couple times. He, he tries to take a, like a, a Ram and he does a few other things, but he's really not the focus. He's kind of just like a little tiny side character and he's almost played off as a joke because he really kind of is compared to all these great big powers at play. And he's just this like small time thug ruling, lording over this little community. But the story itself um, is quite, quite fun. I mean, it, it, I think it definitely plays into some real history. I don't know if the story of Robin Hood is necessarily set during the time of Richard the Lionheart. But Richard Lionheart was definitely a real person, and he definitely did go on crusades, and he invaded France, and they were very costly, and all those things. I, I believe he also died in France, so that could also be historically accurate. I'm sure one of you guys can c confirm or deny that. But um, yeah, this is a it's a medieval epic with Russell Crowe kind of toward the end of his powers, I would say. He was a young rising star and gladiator. He was at the height of his powers and like master and commander and maybe the that one where he a beautiful mind. But then it, in this movie, he's kind of he's getting a little bit older. 
He's not like the young, sexy, heartthrob hunk guy. He's kind of the older dad bod dude, which I know you guys can really identify with. So, you know, that's that's well, like the, the shirtless scene, he's pretty buff in that. Oh, he's, he's buff, but he's not like the young ripped Russell Crowe, right? Okay. He's a little doughy. Yeah, a little right. smooth, a little doughy. He's a little Pillsbury action in his in his bod. But not to say he's not he's still fit. I mean, he's still in good shape. He can clearly tell, but he's not he's not what he was. Anyway. Yeah, well, just just on a side note, he was apparently the oldest actor to have played Robin Hood in any screen adaptation. He was 45 years old at the time. And he looks great for 45. But it's tough when you are, I mean, Maid Marian in the story is like this young lady, right? Maid Marian. And in this, she's like this old widow. <laughs> she's old like maid. 50, right? I mean, it, in, in real medieval times, she would not be like any kind of, attractive for anybody to marry at that point yeah the, wasn't the average age like 35 like the average age of death or lifespan at the time yeah i mean if, if she wasn't married at you know 25 she's like an old maid so at this movie she's a grandmother a couple times over and nobody's considering jumping into that potato sack but anyway the movie itself is uh you know it's it's fanciful it's it suffers from quite a few hollywood tropes there's like a big final battle at the end with the hero and the villains. And... I got issues with that. Oh yeah, me too. I, I mean, the, the the last scene was like, okay, Ridley Scott watched Saving Private Ryan, and he really wanted 1200s uh, Norman invasion style Higgins with the PT boats, boats. with the Higgins boats <laughs> <laughs> dropping off the soldiers in a dramatic fashion, because that would have happened. No, it was absolutely ridiculous in that sense. And then, of course, yeah, I mean, just all the tropes, even uh, all the... Uh, anyway, we'll get into it. But it's it's still a pretty dang good movie, um, if a bit paint by the numbers, I'll say that. And there are quite a bit, quite a few plot points. Um, the, the overall message seemed to be the father's message of the story, which I take some issue with, although the, I thought that... Um, you know, Russell Crowe's speech to the king at the end was actually fairly decent, uh, short from being, you know, an anarchist message. It was at least fairly libertarian, like, you're not going to be a tyrant to us. We'll actually have rights. Seems like a decent message for the most part. But yeah, overall, yeah. pretty strong. I, I like the, uh, you know, every Englishman's home is a castle. Like, we're all kings of our own castle. Yeah. Uh, and we have the right to hunt off the land and s take care of ourselves and be sovereign right. individual kind of thing, you know, instead of being at the king's mercy about whether or not we can provide for our families. Which Right, and I think there's has, some present day. Has some parallels to the today, Daniel, when governors can decide whose works and jobs are essential or not. Right, yeah. And I've been doing this on every episode, like, Oh, Ben-Hur back from 26 AD. Well, it applies to today. Well, so does this one from 1199. Uh, Mike, let's right. get your uh, your take on the Google description and, and Robert's opening here. Yeah, I, I thought the Google description was actually pretty good, considering some of them are, are pretty bad. Uh, so I thought it was pretty spot on. Um, I, I agreed with almost, I, I would say, everything that Robert said uh, in terms of analysis of the movie. Um, overall, I... I enjoyed this movie. Um, you know, I, I watched it with with my wife in the theaters back when it came out, and we watched it again last night in preparation for this podcast. And I remember thinking, 
I actually kind of like it. Um, and, uh, you know, so it does have its problems for sure. Lots of uh, inconsistent things that wouldn't have happened, but you'll have that in a, in a movie. So uh, overall, I, I liked it quite a bit. I was entertained by it. And I, I enjoyed the secret uh, libertarian message that, that you've referenced. And so that's, that's really why I like it the most. Yeah, it's a movie. When I was watching it, I'm like, I want to like it even more. You know, it's, it's just it doesn't quite hit all the beats that I want, but it gets close. And it also feels like super ambitious. Like there's so many moving pieces, so many set pieces happening that it gets confusing as to who's doing what and why. What are the motivations and why is it important to the story? And it almost bears like a second viewing once you sort of know what happens to then be able to see where those pieces, those chessboard pieces are moving, because we've got the, the Lionheart, he dies, but he's done some horrible atrocity shit against Muslim women and children on the crusades. And of course, Russell Crowe is like giving the straight scoop and he's put in uh, the shackles for it. Or what, what is that thing called? Where the stocks in the stocks. stocks. Yeah. Right. So he's like, Hey, thanks for your, your honesty. But by the way, we're going to, we're going to kill you for it. Um, and then, uh, and then the King John who similar to the Sheriff Nottingham, of course, famous in the story that we're all familiar with, uh, King John, hardly a part of this. I mean, he, he's, he's more a part of it than the Sheriff of Nottingham, but he's more of like almost a sympathetic character. Like initially, yeah, he's, he's this petulant kind of jackass, but there's, there's a period of time where you sort of like think that he's maybe trying to do something decent where he's trying to like make peace with the Scottish Lords and band together to resist the French invasion. But of course, as Robert, you of course said, uh, he betrays them at the end. Oddly enough, a politician going back on their words of who could, who could think that. Uh, but again, you know, this is like a, a reimagining of, of an origin story of Robin Hood. And in some ways it's maybe too ambitious. It tries to do too many different things. Like the, the traditional Robin Hood story to me is very small. It's Sherwood Forest. It's Nottingham. It's Maid Marian. It's the King, King John, and it's the Sheriff of Nottingham. And, and you have this kind of like conflict between the three people and these small like areas. Here, we're talking about Palestine. We're talking about France. We're talking about the English coast. We're talking about London. We're talking about the Scottish Highlands. We're, we're like going all over the place. Um, and we're talking about like a civil war within England. And then we're talking about uh, France invading. Just so much going on. And I think that it's one of those movies that I appreciate the ambition. And Ridley Scott was doing sort of a string of these movies from Gladiator to Robin Hood to Kingdom of Heaven. And in some ways, you can sort of almost tie them together. They have some like relationship to each other. And I wonder if that was maybe intentional i uh mike c not to be confused with mike t our guest tonight uh we had him on for kingdom of heaven uh recently and he's a big fan of ridley scott and michael mann and kubrick but um sometimes with great directors and i consider ridley scott a great director uh there's an overall narrative that they try to utilize over a period of time so over the course of several movies and maybe I'm reading into it that something that's not really there, but it feels like he's like in that period several times. And he's trying to give this overarching theme. Um, 
do you see anything like that, Robert? Or am I just like totally blowing smoke here? Well, that could be. Um, I, I don't know if that is the case. It, certainly it's art and art can be subjective and you can interpret it in multiple ways. So you can see repeating themes or an evolving theme throughout a series of works. I don't think if he's, I've never heard of Ridley Scott ever coming out and saying that this is my Cornetto trilogy. This is my medieval epic trilogy and it's all connected in a certain way. Um, I would say that Ridley Scott, you know, he, he definitely had his time in the sun and he has his strong moments. Um, he's not a flawless director, obviously. I mean, all movies are flawed because you're all, you're there's, there's way too many moving parts to have everything, even as a director to be completely happy with the finished product, of course. Um, in this one, like you mentioned, there's a lot of moving parts. I wonder if in the theatrical cut was the, the, the wild kids, was that in that the theatrical cut? Because I felt like that that was this really kind of extraneous, like, what does this have to do with the rest of the movie? Why are we spending time in the woods all of a sudden with these dirty kids? What does this have to do with the plot? And it kind of, they kind of came in at the end, like they were part of the final battle for some reason with like Maid Marion was leading the charge with these dirty kids on these little ponies which I thought was just hilarious, unintentionally hilarious because they would, and they were like beating grown men in, <laughs> in full armor. Are you kidding me? These little kids are beating these full grown men in chain armor that have probably been the veterans of many battles. Whatever. Okay. I know Hollywood. Right, and, and we're supposed to believe that just because Russell Crowe like said in his speech, like, Oh yeah, I could teach you guys stuff that yeah. all of a sudden they know this. We don't see it. We don't yeah. see him teaching them how to do all those things. Of course, we don't have time, but I just wonder why it was even in there at all. It didn't, it seemed like it didn't contribute anything to the overall plot, except to give us that final hippie commune scene at the very, very end where everybody's living and working together and nobody's hungry and blah, 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 blah. Right. Like, which you could have done that without having the little dirty kids. Yeah, we know, we know, Mike, that's why you like this one, but um, that's it. <laughs> did you, uh, now you obviously in the theater saw the theatrical cut. When you watched it again the other night, do you, did you watch the unrated? And if so, did you notice what was added and what was different? No, so I, we watched the theatrical cut, um, you know, just iTunes movie rental, which I'm sure was the theatrical cut. Um, and that matches up with the time. Uh, that, that you had mentioned earlier and the little hippie kids were in it. Uh, so they, they were definitely in it. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I think what they were going for with, with that plot line was that there was such dysfunction on this land owned by uh, Kate Blanchett's father-in-law, you know, her, her deceased husband's father, who is the Lord of the manor uh, or, or the knight or, or something like that. And he, it's so dysfunctional because he's old and decrepit and blind and no one is running the show and they're being so overtaxed by the government uh, and no one is fighting for them. And so what's happening is all these children are either starving or they're running away and learning to live off the land. And so I think what they were, that was supposed to bolster the fact that this, this, uh, this manor is in just total disarray and nobody is there. And it sets the stage for Russell Crowe to come in and play the hero and organize and, um, and write the ship. And then, you know, in the end, 
once they're declared outlaws, rather than live on the land, uh, or I should say live on the property, they wind up living in the woods, you know, as you said, the little hippie commune, which I think is the worst part of the movie, right? I, I think the movie is great. Uh, you know, I actually really love it, with the exception of that last part, right? This is like 90% of the movie, Hollywood didn't know they were making uh, an argument for freedom. And then in the last 10%, they said, ah, oh, this is, yes, communism. Okay, here we go. Now we're good. <laughs> See, that's what we were going for the whole time. Right, right. It's like they yeah. stumbled, realized what they had done, and said, oh, we better put a communist no, no, message no, no, in no, there. No, not liberty. No, no, no. Communism. <laughs> right. Not the government bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think I, you. I think okay. you have to. I think you have to pick one. I, if you're gonna go with the kid route, then show us a bunch of training montages with the kids and have the kids play some sort of integral part in the defeat of the villain that only they is, can do. That only they can do. And for some reason, Philip of France is the villain, but he's like hard. He's in it for like what one two minutes. He has like thirty seconds of screen time. I don't. He, he I don't like understand. Wakes up. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, he wakes up and then he's like, he says, uh, you know, "Turn around, never mind." But what what was even that? I, the real he's villain, kinda, I guess, he's is a, God. He's a big old pansy. He wants to take over and then realizes, "Oh, we're gonna lose. Never mind. See ya." Right, but like Daniel was saying, you got to have them. If you're gonna go the kid route, then you focus the movie more on the kids and have the kids be the savior along with Robin Hood and why he's taught them. And then that actually makes sense for the kids to be in the movie. Because as it is, there's really no reason for the kids to even be in the film. They don't do anything that is necessary. I mean, they don't teach Robin Hood about anything. He doesn't use any knowledge he got from them to help defeat Godfrey or whatever. So it really is just nonsensical. It's just this big mashup at the end of, oh, all these kind of ideas we were playing with throughout the film. It's it's really would have been tighter film if you cut the kids out or you cut out some of the like the Northern Lords stuff and then instead of the Northern Lords coming together to beat King Philip, it's Robin Hood and the little kids and then the king is like, what are you doing with these little kids in this final battle? Your guys are going to get slaughtered and then Robin Hood's like, guess what? They're going to do something awesome <laughs> that only the little kids are going to be able to do and check this shit out. Boom goes the dynamite, and then boom, and then he teaches them. He teaches them to run underneath the horses because they're so small, and only they can do that. Sure, whatever. I I don't know. It it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I think I'd probably be laughing either way at whatever ridiculous final medieval battle because I have plenty of issues with that final battle. It It was was like it was really bad. It It didn't follow any of the rules that like real medieval final battles did. But anyway, uh, yeah. It. I think he. I think a tighter theatrical cut without the kids probably would have been a better film for me yeah it it felt to me as if the resolution at the end of here's the origin of robin hood is shoehorned in like it it does not fit the rest of the story that we're being told and it has a lot of moving parts as i said and it, it has some interesting premises but i think it tries to take on too many things and despite the length it's like over three hours i think in the uh, theatrical cut it's still not enough time to, to really flesh out all of these ideas that are presented. It's and like two hours and 20 minutes. In it, it almost needs to be a miniseries if they're going to go with that many plot lines and that many intricacies. It needs to be a miniseries, uh, right. not a full-blown television series, but you know maybe a four or five-part uh, series. Yeah. Right? Like, I was on board with Godfrey imposing taxation upon the lords and they're already being bled enough and then the lords resisting 
we don't need the whole Prince Philip thing to be the, you know, Godfrey's a turncoat and he's going to kill his own knights and then replace them with these French knights and then yeah. go and, and kill people in the villages and, and the lordships in the north. That that just made no sense to me. Like, and the other thing with Godfrey is like all of a sudden he's over here and then he magically teleports over there. And it's like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> like, how are you over there when you were just over here in the last scene? It doesn't make any sense. These are supposed to be like concurrent events or, or, or you know, sequential events. It, it I'm, I'm make- glad. I'm glad you noticed that too. I thought I had a stroke. Like, what, yeah. how did he get there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it happened twice. It was like, Definitely at the end where he was like at the landing site, which is, by the way, the worst possible place I could imagine landing an invading army. This like concave bowl where people can rain arrows down upon you and there's only one escape route. Makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, yeah. Medieval landings. I don't know. I'm sure Ridley Scott was completely uninterested in actual medieval landings because that wouldn't have been your Saving Private Ryan beach landing dramatic attack. But from what I understand, back in the day, you would just have like a guy, a bunch of guys in a bunch of boats, and they would find some small, quiet place to land where there was no defense, and they would all sneak out, and then you would just have your army there on there. It, it makes no sense to have this dramatic, contested battle. If you saw a, a defending army on the beach, you would just be like, all right, everybody pull back, because what can they do? They can shoot some arrows maybe at you a little bit on your boats as you're coming back. And then you could just go down the the shore a couple of miles or 20 miles or whatever. Your boats are going to be able to beat their defending. I mean, they're not going to know exactly where you're going to land. It it really makes no sense. You would want to fight on land with the superior force. Sun Tzu, you know, fight where you want to fight, not where your opponent wants to fight. That... It's it. It was just Ridley Scott wanting to have this big dramatic fight that made no no damn sense whatsoever. So yeah, right, I right. Have, and that's just outside of the dumb Higgins boats because that I, <laughs> I they used pitch to seal their boats. I don't think they had the the technology to have like the drop top drop <laughs> the drop top ramp that would come down. And then uh, how are they sealing that? How are they even? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I it's thought I was going to see a tank roll out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and some German snipers like shooting them down. <laughs> yeah, where are the pillboxes? Come on, the flamethrowers. Yeah, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then the whole, um, you know, I thought what was interesting was, and this sort of alludes to what you were talking about, Mike. Halfway through the movie, they're making it about the government is the one enforcing taxation upon the populace by threat of death and violence. And they're just driving that point home where they're just ransacking these villagers and rounding villagers and rounding, rounding people up and, and all of these things. And it's all based on what's your name? How much land do you have? Here's how much you need to pay us. And this is a, a a society that's presented in the film. That's already like had several years of bad harvest and already been overtaxed as it was to support these wars uh, in, uh, in the crusades, uh, for a popular king, uh, they, they present Lionheart as people wanted to support him, but it was costly to do all this stuff. And then they have this John who's, you know, he's, he's kind of a piece of shit and everyone doesn't respect him. He's kind of a jackass and uh, people don't want to continue to support 
what he's doing. And, and he also had a similar, um, not similar, but like his take was, Hey, all that money you gave to Lionheart, it's gone. I'm the new guy. You got to pay me now. You know, like, like, and, and any debts that, that Lionheart had uh, incurred, like to pay the army and to pay for things that, that he had, um, you know, drawn up on the credit card, King John was just not even going to pay it. And so I thought that was another interesting dynamic, but uh, to, to your point, you know, it's, it's Hollywood sort of presenting a film where it's the government overspending and overtaxing and over brutalizing the population. And they're really the villains in this. And I thought that was a, that was actually quite on the nose, quite accurate. Yeah, it was, that's why it was so shocking to me and continues to be shocking. It's like, you know, almost like one of those jokes, like, Oh, they said the quiet part out loud. (laughs) I mean, Oh, like, like, like when, when that lady on CNN uh, with Cuomo was like, yeah, so, so all these States are opening up, but they're doing it without the vaccine. So we're not going to have that carrot of freedom to offer to people in exchange for the vaccine. What are, what are we going to do? It's like, well. Yeah, and she she said, you know, we have a very limited window where we can tie freedom to the vaccine. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that. That's that's how I felt about this movie is, you know, ooh, ooh, sorry, Hollywood. You weren't supposed to admit that it really is the government that steals from people the most. Yeah, and another thing I liked about this film, and they really did accurately depict... Uh, kings and their reasoning. I really like the way um, John goes back on his word at the very, very end. He he reasons it out by saying, well, listen, I was put here by God and all these rights and whatever, they're going to get in my way. And that means they're getting in God's way. So I'm not going to do it. Uh, throughout history, the, the divine right of kings was very much the excuse used for any kind of behavior they wanted um going back as far back at least as far back as the egyptians if not farther they constantly said either they were descended from gods basically like the son of a god or they were instilled and put in there by gods and that's why kings were always like blessed by the pope or whatever religious figure at the time the priest or or they were gods themselves right so that I, that I think that really was accurate and something that a king would absolutely do. Be like, wait a minute, this undercuts my authority. And if this is all true, then uh, I'm kind of all, I'm, I'm, I'm really bullshit here. So I can't, I can't go through with it. So that What's was funny. That was <laughs> nice. He's almost making the constitutional argument. Like, well, here's the, the basic premises we all agree on. And based on those, I can't grant you this because... You've right. agreed that I have, you know, been thrown Put here by, by God. God. This contradicts yeah. my godhood status, so I can't do this. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a very good point, and in in some ways, uh, I, I I see the movie as sort of like being like presenting this divine right of kings as a negative, um, and in a lot of ways it is, but also in the Hoppian sense, there is certain advantages to having quote-unquote skin in the game or a longer time horizon on the effects of your policies that would temper uh, what gets imposed upon people, which makes some of the things we see in this somewhat unrealistic because you would expect an uprising, right? Like the Scottish uh, Highlanders were sort of threatening in this movie. 
but um, in Democracy, the God that Fails, Hoppe basically makes the argument that democracy incentivizes a shorter time horizon and more immediate plunder, whereas a monarchist society, and granted he's not advocating for one, but he's saying in contrast between these two options, this one will do this and this one will likely do this based on economic laws, uh, that the monarchy would have more incentive to have a uh, preservation of the capital stock and to take better care of the um, population and the surrounding areas to enhance you know, the longevity of this system, of the structure. And so what we see in this movie is sort of this presentation that they don't give a fuck <laughs> about the villagers and the people and the lords. There's like, we've taxed you to death and now we're just going to kill you because you can't pay the taxes. We're going to put you in these like, we're going to trap you in these uh, buildings and burn them. Like that's what, that's literally what Godfrey was doing uh, to, to try to collect the tax. He was burning women, children alive. It was like Waco times 10 and just Nottingham alone. Yeah, I think this is where um, another caricature aspect of what Hollywood thinks and, and what a lot of people think um, that a monarch would do. And you rightly point out that um, that Hoppe, he's he's right on on the money. Uh, that with, with a longer time horizon, that a, a true monarch would probably do a better job. And that's not to say uh, that there's no such thing as an evil monarch. Of course there are. We have history full of evil monarchs and they can do evil things. But it makes no sense that if your livelihood and your wealth and your prosperity depends upon the tax cattle that you claim authority over, why would you kill them? Uh, yeah, so, the golden goose, the golden geese. Right. So, I mean, they, they would, and they certainly have in history employed horrific tactics uh, to to enforce compliance. So again, not saying that all monarchs are benevolent or that, uh, or that most of them were, uh, just saying that this seems like a, a pretty thinly veiled, uh, attempted propaganda. Yeah. Well, in, in favor, in favor of, well, democracy must be better than this, right? That's the implied, message there right right well those those stupid rubes those ignorant neanderthals who had monarchs we clearly have it better with our democratic system that's kind of what i took from it yeah and and one other side point to this <clears throat> is that with a monarch you know who to blame and and they almost present this in this movie where king john goes up to the scottish soldiers and is like here's my sword use mine just just kill me if you think that's the right thing to do I mean, that's in some ways kind of true. Like when it's a despotic monarch imposing these totalitarian rules upon you, you know who to focus your anger at. But when it's this democratic process, bureaucratic process, it's spread out all over the place. It's like, oh, I'm just following the rules. I'm just following the regulations. I'm just enforcing the laws that are on the books. Well, it's back and to so, we are the government, right? You know, right. it's Rothbard pointing out that th this is an insane notion that would have us all believing that the Nazis committed, or excuse me, that the Jews committed suicide under the Nazis. Because if if we are the government, then I suppose the Jews committed suicide. Stands to reason. reason. Oh, wait, we're not allowed to bring that up anymore, right? <laughs> no, no, yeah, of course. Well, only if we're talking about um, Republicans being bad, then it's okay. Yeah, then it's okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying like, hey, 
I, I'm I'm an equal opportunity hater of political parties and affiliations. Bingo. So, Robert, let's take you uh, let's take us through some of your notes here because we're going to have to start winding down pretty soon. It's it's kind of amazing how we start talking and then all of a sudden it's almost an hour later. Yeah. So, OK, here we go. I got quite a few notes here. Uh, we've already been over some of it, but here we go. The first thing I wrote down was a quote uh, by Robin Longstride. And he's hanging out with Maid Marian, and she's, she mentions that all the deer in the forest are the property of the king. And Robin goes, if it's illegal for a man to fend for himself, how then can he be a man of his own right? So that's, yeah, uh, if you're going to deny somebody the ability to fend for themselves, much like there are parallels to today. Maybe he was an essential hunter, and that was an essential deer. <laughs> Might have been. Might have been. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the confused messaging. I want to say in this film, I don't know if you guys interpreted it this way, but I know I did. Um, at one point during the, the raping and the pillaging and the looting of, uh, Nottingham by the French, um, uh, one of the guys who's going to get his rape on with Maid Marion, he goes, how many acres do you own? And she's like 5,000. And he's like, oh, sweet. I'm going to go get my rape on with you. And then at one point, and he's like about to rape her. And he goes, nobody should be able to own 4,000 acres. And she goes, well, it's actually 5,000. But it, if, that's, if that's the message that's delivered by a villain character, he's saying basically a communistic message, right? That nobody should be able to own X amount. It's a very anti-capitalist message that shouldn't, there's nobody that should be this rich. You're basically the movie is demonizing communist the the communist idea that you know there shouldn't be these rich people, but then at the end you've got this hippie commune where everybody's taking care of each other and there's no money and nobody's trading anything and you know this kind of thing. So I I don't know what you guys took within that, but for me it just kind of smacked of typical Hollywood not having a clear message or even understanding these concepts that they're playing around with. Yeah. I would agree with that. I, I found that very confused. And I think that he was making a point that like, oh, you don't actually have 5,000 acres anymore. You only have 4,000. And that's our starting negotiating point. I'm, I'm about to take more after I mm -hmm. rape you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that is what he was getting at. Um, I, I actually have a little bit of a different take on on this part of it. Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. He is um, an old man. No, oh, yeah, right. It's well, hey, it's late. It's it's almost nine o'clock my time. It's time for bed. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the club, buddy. <laughs> the sun oh, is what am I doing still awake? Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't think it was that confusing of a message, and, and here's why. I saw it more of an ominous warning sign. I mean, really. Uh, and forgive me, but I can't help but analyze these things in light of the craziness that's been going on for the last 12, 13 months. Um, at, a, at a certain point, if you continue to refuse to go along with whatever the government is telling you you have to do, whether it be masking or vaccines or whatever, in short order, you're not going to be of the privileged class. You're not even going to be of the normal class. You're going to be such low class that you will be relegated to 
uh, living outside of the comfort areas. Now, I don't think that means immediately my family and I are going to move into tents in the forest and live off of, you know, poached deer. I'm not to that point yet, but I do think it, it shows a little bit of continuity with the storyline to say that once the government decides that you are a persona non grata, you will be relegated to um, not attending sports events and not traveling internationally and not attending the nice restaurants and not going to museums and plays and theater and other such things. Uh, and so to me, I thought that actually was a, a fairly consistent message. Uh, what, what say you? So the England social credit system doesn't, uh, the, the back, the English fax passport. Yeah. I mean, of course they, they didn't see this coming. I'm not saying that he was clairvoyant and saw this coming. Um, but in that context, I don't see it as so much of a contradiction, right? The, the storyline goes that, you know, they were not willing to pay the taxes and therefore they were declared outlaws and they were ostracized. Well, I think that goes, I think that goes right along with the progression of, of how, of how the story played out and how it could play out in the coming months. Yeah, I, I would agree with, with a lot of what you're saying. Um, I mean, in, in some ways it's like, uh, the Willie Sutton quote, like, well, why'd you rob the bank of the money? Well, cause that's where the money was. And <laughs> of course that's where the government taxes people is because, well, that's where the money is, or at least that's where they think it is. And as presented in this film, like these estates have already been taxed enough. And there was also taxation by the church. Uh, if we recall, a lot of the grain um, had been taken by the church and Friar Tuck comes in and is like, sort of gets in cahoots with uh, Robin Hood to steal back the grain that was going to um, some some abbey, like, you know, some far flung place uh, away from Nottingham because they had had five or six bad harvests in a row. So it's not even that these um, estates, these lords were doing that well. You know, they were having hard times and being taxed by the king to support the crusades. And then King John wanted to up those taxes. And then the church was also taking a big cut. So and we have a lot of like competing things that are sort of imposing upon the supposed rich who really aren't as rich as everyone thinks that they are. So there's a lot of perceptions at play, at least as presented in the movie. And I think that that also plays into uh, some of the things we were talking about in the pre-show bonus content, where there's perceptions in the narrative that more people are going along with what we're being presented with than actually are. And so when you come across people who sort of see through it, you sort of have that, like that shared moment and, and realize that we're not alone, you know? So that's, that's sort of another relation to present day, but uh, to your point about like restrictions on what they can do, uh, I can see some parallels to it though. It's a much more crude form in this movie because it's, you know, 1100 AD, 1099 AD, a, a few years before the Magna Carta, which is sort of alluded to in this towards the end. And of course, King John reneges on it, which I'm sure Robert wants to go on a little diatribe about that. Well, I do want to go through a little bit more of my notes here. I do have a few more things. So at one point when Robin is finding out who he is and he's talking to the Baron of Nottingham and the Baron of Nottingham is telling him that his father was a stonemason and he that he was also like this philosopher and he had these great ideas these radical ideas and forgive me if i'm wrong but this is what i wrote down when i watched the film i said i wrote down robin's dad 
thought that kings needed their subjects as much as their subjects needed their king. I think that's the quote from the Baron, the, the adopted father guy, about Robin's actual father. So he's, his radical idea is that kings actually need their subjects. I don't understand how that is radical because everybody knows that kings need the subjects from the, the taxes. But if he's saying that subjects need their king because human beings lead, need leadership, well, then the anarchist in me says, yes, human beings need leadership. And it comes from many places. Laws, books, leaders in thought, speakers, elders, wherever you can find knowledge, you get leadership. What you don't need is some tyrant or someone threatening you, treating you like a child, stealing from them and telling them that it's good for you. You don't need that. So I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know. For me, it's a little bit confused. Maybe it's because... I mean, to say that people need a king, they need that they're, they're getting some sort of a benefit. I mean, I know that the movie kind of plays up this idea of a kingdom being a great thing. And I understand that people look to governments for protection from outside attacks. And never mind the fact that you're getting attacked from within all the time. But there's this always this extraneous threat of invasion from the barbarians or from France or wherever. <laughs> and usually, Dutch. usually it's France. always the French. But it's always, you know, terrorism, whatever the enemy of the day is, it's always an excuse for more government, more theft. Uh, you know, you understand what I'm saying here, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, I was about to make a very illuminating point and, and it's escaped me now. But um, <laughs> what the fuck was I talking about? Uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I think that there is a certain amount of the population that does need leadership because they're going to be the NPC style sort of unthinking masses. And that's sort of one of the beautiful yet terrible aspects of democracy, right? Like if you can propagandize enough people to want a certain thing or think a certain way, then democracy is your friend. You can manipulate it however you want, you know? So if, if you have the controls of those levers, uh, then you sort of have a de facto, like by proxy totalitarianism, as long as you can manipulate the masses significantly enough, sufficiently enough to get the wet, get what you want to be desirable by the masses, then you can basically get any policy that you desire. And I think that's what we see in present day. Uh, and I'm going way off the rails of what I thought I was going to say here, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that the movie does have the sort of this confused message, like you're saying. And, and so a lot can be read into this, but uh, you know, King John is, is he's sort of the opposite of the lionhearted where people actually wanted to support Richard, even though he was doing, you know, terrible things like we talked about earlier, he was slaughtering women and children in the Muslim countries in Palestine and, and whatnot. But then we have King John, who's like this petulant jackass who won't listen to reason at all, uh, or will only do things for his direct benefit. So he'll say the right thing in the moment, but then like renege on it immediately. Uh, so he was very much a pragmatic, um, in the moment, you know, willing to put on whatever face and tell anyone what they needed to hear to get what he wanted. 
And so I thought that that was pretty appropriate as far as like how most politicians will behave. You know, like they'll say what you want to hear. They'll give you good rhetoric when they want to get elected or pass something, but then they'll, they'll go against it. Uh, we were talking earlier about um, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, who's been really good on the lockdowns and all of these things. And she gave a speech at CPAC, which had tons of great rhetoric. I mean, Reagan had great rhetoric, you know, like freedom, this freedom, that like individuality, you know, consequences and, and pulling yourself up and, and earning things. Well, she had, you know, a similar speech like that, that sounded great. But then she also, I believe, recently vetoed a bill that was passed by the South Dakota legislature decriminalizing marijuana. Well, that flies in the face of everything that she just says in this speech at CPAC. So it's, you know, it's the typical thing. And, and I don't know if it's because people are consciously aware of these logical contradictions or that they just don't care. And I got to think that it's probably that they just don't care or, or they don't recognize it at all. They think they're going doing a good thing, uh, but they don't put two and two together. It could be. I don't know the familiars or the details of that particular bill. I mean, it might have been that it decriminalized marijuana and it also spent $8.4 billion on somebody's pet giant turtle project or something. You never know with these government projects. Um, I have two more, two more final notes. Uh, one is just real quick. I don't think a battlefield is the best place to make out with your girlfriend. Just saying, I just don't know if it's the best. It's probably the most romantic. I'll grant you that by far the most romantic spot, but it just seemed a little dangerous at the time. Yeah. What is this mean? Is this 2010? I mean, it seems pretty woke to be having her have this women empowered moment of like, she shows up on the battlefield when she's supposed to not be there. And he's just like, cool with it. Yeah. He's just I like, yeah, know. whatever. All right. Lead that battle. Go, you go girl. Right. Like, <clears throat> yeah, very woke. Like, a a man of this time and era would say, Oh, you're here in armor on a horse and you're going to fight in battle with me. Yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah. And, and yeah. this is the time no when, way. when <laughs> no way, when her father-in-law had to pretend that Russell Crowe was his son so that she wouldn't lose title to the land. You know, it does. It doesn't make any sense. And, yeah. and by the way, wife, if you're watching this, if you show up on some battlefield, I'm going to send you home. I'm sorry. Trent. Get back in the kitchen. <laughs> you beat Make me, me a sandwich. Too. All right. And my Wait. final note, my final note, guys, is when Russell Crowe comes in and saves the day against the Frenchman in Nottingham. And they have won the day. And they've got all the Frenchmen rounded up. Russell Crowe needs to find out where and when Prince Philip is going to oh. land. And he yeah. goes all Jack Bauer on this one French dude. And he tortures them. But... What he doesn't, I don't know if he realizes, I'm sure this scene was made this way for time, maybe reasons, but it doesn't make any sense. Like the Frenchman is standing up against this wall, but all his French friends and compatriots can hear him as he's talking. And he could easily be lying. What you need to do is you need to torture each one of these French guys individually, <laughs> separately, maximize the torture, but then you'll know you're going to get the truth. Because you just you just torture one French guy, you could get any answer. He could have said uh, Barney the flipping dinosaur on Wednesday the fourteenth in your butthole, and he would have been, oh, okay, we're out of here. We got to go check out my butthole because that's where Frelp is landing. It's just it made no sense for him to just immediately trust that guy's answer. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. This you're, you're talking about the cop tactic where you put people in separate interrogation rooms and you tell them that the other one turned on the other and you lie to them to get exactly. them to divulge the truth. Mike, is, well, is there at least get, that? At least you get multiple. And if they all had the same lie, you know, that could have been the case. OK, everybody agrees. We're all going to tell them that it's actually in this other place. Maybe that's true. Maybe. But the fact that you're just going to torture one guy and take his word for it. I don't know. I don't think torture works that good. What I'm arguing for is more torture. More torture. <laughs> exactly. I mean, coming from a coming from a voluntarist exactly. perspective, I would expect you to argue for more torture. Exactly. Thank you. You know, I was of the mind that how would they even know where they're landing in 1099 AD? Like, it seems like it would be a little bit more difficult to choose a, a position of your landing. And wouldn't it be a little bit more compartmentalized? Like maybe um, the main bad guy, the scar-faced, I forget his name all of a sudden. Godfrey. He, Godfrey would know where it is, and maybe one or two other guys. But you don't think like just some rando dude in the in the in the army would necessarily know? Eh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it didn't seem to be any of his business. I mean, he's already there. So, that was some pretty good luck. They found that one guy who knew. One guy, and he told him right away as yeah. soon as uh, he said, "I only got one arrow left," and you know, you know where it's going, I guess. Right uh, into the boys. I mean, <laughs> anyway, it, it's a lot of tropes in this movie. It was still a lot of fun. I like a good medieval war type film, even though, man, that final battle, it just, none of it made any sense from a, any kind of uh, military tactics. You know, the weird thing is, it's supposed to be this grand spectacle at the end, but it's kind of a letdown because it's actually like quite small. You know, it's yeah. just like at this bluff and... I don't know. It's does they it, find a couple of the guys that got off the boats, but nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to have the gravitas that you would think this epic battle would entail, but I don't know. It, it's a little bit weird. I, I got to say my favorite adaptation of Robin Hood, even, uh, you know, the, the traditional story or this somewhat prequel origin story, I think it still comes down to the Disney version with the Fox and then the Carrie Yule's version, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Mel Brooks. <laughs> That's probably number two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This one's probably at number three. Sorry, Kevin Costner. Um, but Kevin Costner movie's right under this. It's pretty close. There are things I like about this movie more than those other ones you're talking about. This at least had a, a, a grittier like aspect to it. Like It was very much realism based except for all the fantastical hollywood bs stuff but it was very much you know he didn't have like the magical archery skills except for the very end when he was like shooting between the guys very end yeah who knows where but he just shoots it up at a random angle and it's perfect yeah yeah and the merry men almost useless in this movie so they almost have like barely more like significance than the sheriff of Nottingham in this one. Yeah, but that big dude, he's funny. Little he is John. Funny. Yeah. Yeah, little John. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, little John. <laughs> he I thought well casted in this movie. I mean, he's a goofball and provided some, I think, some good comic relief. Yeah, I wish their their personalities had come out a little bit more. And but you know, if it's his, if it's Robin Hood and his band of merry men, I get it. That wasn't the movie they were trying to make here. It was more of an origin story, and maybe they come into their personalities later. But I don't know. Most of the characters seemed a little bit generic. Uh, even Friar Tuck, who was all about beekeeping and 
did a few things here and there, and he was definitely a unique character. He didn't really have a whole lot that set him apart from random generic medieval guy. I mean, none of them really did. Yeah. When I think back on it. I think what you're saying is you wanted more of this. Like, I like the world that's presented by Ridley Scott here. There's not enough meat on each of these characters. Like, yeah, I think, I think it's butter over too much bread. It's yeah, it's sort of like thin. they're presented, but they're not really fleshed out. They need yeah. they needed to do this in the era of streaming serial television. They would have had yeah. three or three to five great Netflix seasons. Yeah, there's plenty here. You, there's all kinds of different characters to play with, a bunch of different plot lines to play with. You yeah. could have an entire season where the finale is the invasion by Philip, or you could have a bunch of episodes set in the forest with the little kids and have, have a bunch of different adventures. And then the, the Northern Lords could be a whole season plot angle. There could be all kinds of stuff. As, as an interesting, I'm just, this is just coming to my mind now. Do you think movies like this, of this time frame, and that have too much going on, but really have good ideas, are what lead, along with the technology, but are what lead to the onslaught of this serial dramatic television that you can binge watch season by season? Do you think this is maybe like the genesis of that? Yeah, I think you're right. I, It's definitely, I mean, I know Game of Thrones came out and blew everything out of the water because you know, it was just too big of a story. You could, There's no way you could turn. I remember when they were first talking about developing Game of Thrones and George Martin was like, well, maybe you could turn one book into, you know, a movie. So you'd have like three or four movies. But even then it would be just the highlights, barely any of the character content. And you'd be just cutting out massive amounts of everything. Yeah. And then when it got picked up by HBO, and even then, and I still think that the the, the HBO series is quite well done, except for that final season. Um, it still leaves out entire characters, entire plot lines are just chopped for just and it still had a ton going on. Yeah. It still had it still had a way ton going on. Yeah. And, and you look at the joke where it's like, now who's this guy again? I don't even remember. Yeah, and you look at the failure of the of the recent Star Wars movies and and the success of uh, the Mandalorian, right? And you see the ability of the Mandalorian to say, "We're going to do two complete seasons on this one story, and then there's going to be a whole other story, and we're going to develop some other characters, and we're going to develop more." And um, that's fascinating to me to think about a movie like this from 2010, where maybe this should have been. A, a TV series or a streaming series or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot here. Like it's not game of Thrones amount of stuff, but it's probably like a mini series amount of stuff. Like you could, I could see this being a six or eight hour mini series to fully get what we're just what we have building. Here. To. You could, yeah. you could, you could build on this it. out and turn this into seasons worth of stuff. Yeah. Right. More and has then, been done with less. And that's just getting <laughs> us sure. to the traditional Robin hood story. Right. Yeah, this is just the origin story. Then you can play around with all kinds of stuff in the Sherwood Forest adventures with actually having the Sheriff of Nottingham being a terrifying force instead of just this joke character. Right. I mean, maybe maybe they just consider Prince of Thieves the uh, you know, the next natural movie that people would watch after watching this to continue on with the story. Cuz of course you got the great Alan Rickman. Great Alan Rickman. Hello. It's a spoon because it'll hurt more. 
<laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah, he's yeah. great. He was great. Uh, also great in Die Hard. Indeed. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been going super long already. It's what we tend to do here. We've been trying to make the, the episodes like an hour, and they're always like hour and a half, hour and 45. <laughs> Just happens. But uh, uh, Robert, why don't you lead us off with a final summary review and how many bow or how many arrows you got in your quiver for this one? All right. So Robin Hood starring Russell Crowe, Ridley Scott, 2010. Um, you know, I remember when it first came out, it wasn't very well received. Uh, I, I think it's probably better than I expected it to be. Uh, it's not super amazing. I think it's a little flat. I don't think there's enough character here for any real audience member to really glom onto anything. Like if you go, remember Robin Hood with Russell Crowe? And there's like, uh, I mean, I remember there being a movie, but I don't remember anything about it. I don't remember any awesome scenes in it. You know, there's nothing really to hang your hat on in this film of like that signature scene where like, this is why we're making this movie because of this moment. We made all this movie lead up to this. And this is what everybody's going to remember this badass scene. But there really isn't anything like that. It, it, it's, it's a, standard kind of stock medieval drama with a bunch of fighting that is you know, somewhat decent. Um, Kate Blanchett is all right. Uh, there's some decent acting going on, but I don't know if the characters are really given a whole lot of meat. I think Oscar Isaac's pretty hams it up as King John pretty decently. Um, but you know, it's, it's a movie that tries to do too much. I, I, I've said many, many times on this podcast, I'll say it again. I prefer uh, a, a simple story told in an interesting way instead of a complex story told in some kind of convoluted way. It, it's, it's not necessarily super convoluted. I felt the story just fine. Uh, but I thought there were more elements than there needed to be to tell a good story. It seemed like they were just throwing stuff in there that didn't necessarily need to be in there. So... You know, I don't know if it's just Ridley Scott going a little bit crazy, going a little bit silly in his old age. And uh, then he went on to make those what weird aliens movies that nobody liked. So, you know, eh, like Prometheus and whatever. Uh, I'm not a fan of those movies either. So what are you going to do? Um, uh, I would give this. Uh, it's either six and a half arrows or seven arrows. I'm going to go seven arrows. There's seven arrows in my quiver on this one. I still enjoy it. I don't know if I'll ever come back to this or if I'd come back to it next time. I would probably put it on in the background when I'm doing something else. Yeah, I, I don't see a reason to watch it again. I kind of agree. Like, There's not like a defining moment that we're building up to that's like, I'm watching this for, for this reason. It's not like Ben-Hur where we're watching it to get to that chariot race. Yeah, there is no real defining moment where you're just... So satisfying. Oh, I'm so glad I watched this. It's just like, oh, it's just all gray. It's all gray. It's not like leading up with peaks and valleys. It's right. But but it's also a thing where I want more, you know, like we were talking about earlier. Like, I like what I see, but I don't get enough of it. Yeah, I think it sets up an interesting world. It's very much a gritty medieval Game of Thronesy world with you know, political intrigue and, you know, 
petty character motivations and machinations and that kind of thing. It just doesn't do any of it particularly well or very interesting. Like in Game of Thrones, you had like the Red Wedding. You're not going to get like a moment where you're crying your eyeballs out in this movie. There's nothing like that where you just like feel betrayed or. Yeah, you haven't had time to develop it. You don't have time to develop it. You're right. But there's also none of that really. I mean, maybe it's just a matter of time. But there really isn't any of those moments where you're just thrilled or saddened or anything. It just kind of happens and you just kind of watch it. But I still liked it. You know, the seven arrows for for Robert. So, Mike, this was a movie that you brought up a couple of years ago, and we finally have gotten to it. So, I, I got to think that you got a a, a good uh, submarine review and a good number of arrows for this one. Yeah, I mean, I I'll start with my number of arrows. I give it an eight. Um, I, I've said it before several times. I really enjoyed the movie. Um, it does suffer from the problems that you, that we've all mentioned. Um, I think chief among them is the fact that there's so much here that's appealing that isn't developed, right? Um, there's complexity here, probably too much complexity. There's good characters here underdeveloped. Uh, but overall, again, I, I give it an eight out of 10 and, uh, I probably would watch it again. <laughs> As you did for, for this. <laughs> I did. And I, I, I liked it, but I mean, look, disclaimer, it could be because, we get so few date nights. The kids were asleep and my wife and I got to watch a movie last night. And even though it's in our house, that's a date night. So it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're, you are more advanced than I, because a movie of this length, it takes us two or three nights to watch. Um, and, and I've tortured Robert with near four hour movies for the past several weeks that have taken us four or five nights to watch. Ooh. So, well, this was, this was a necessity. I, you know, it's, it's a busy life. And last night around six 30, I looked at my wife and said, I still got to watch this movie before tomorrow. And she goes, well, cue it up. <laughs> All right. See, that's how, you know, you found the right one. Yep. She's one a good one. A movie that I'm going to give five arrows. Ooh. In my quiver. I know it sounds terrible. I'm like kind of giving it a bad review, but it's mostly because I want so much more. And, and I expect almost more out of Ridley Scott. This is, convoluted in a way where you can follow it if you like were to read it in a script but how they present it on screen it's like all over the place uh there's so many different villains and it's not the villains that you are familiar with from the robin hood stories of of you know lore um i think that there's a lot that is interesting and uh could have been explored further and so that kind of leaves me sort of wanting uh sort of like what robert was saying earlier um, I think Ridley Scott's very talented and he's trying to tell a bigger story. He's biting off a lot more than can be chewed in just three hours. And um, it be, gets to be a little bit overwhelming. I think that the director's cut probably helps flush it out a little bit. I don't know what the nuances and the differences are between them, but I know that Ridley Scott has been a director who's been um, thwarted by studios in the past where they have cut out significant portions of movies to where they don't make a lot of sense, similar to what happened with, uh, with Zack Snyder, with uh, Batman V Superman and justice league. I know kingdom of heaven, uh, many scenes were added that helped to bring the narrative structure of that to make more coherent sense. Um, and I think that's probably what happened with Robin hood. And I don't know, again, I don't know what, what those connective things were that weren't there in the theatrical cut, but it's also a movie that, it didn't like stand out 
Um, I couldn't tell you <laughs> that I remember, you know, Russell Crowe as Robin Hood, except for doing it for this episode. So uh, it didn't really seem to have a, a big cultural um, uh, mark on on things, but it does have enough going for it that it makes me do wish that there was more to it. Of course, Ridley Scott's uh, uh, much older now and probably not going to be doing uh, much more of this type of material. But uh, I think that overall, it's a good suggestion. And it does have a lot of really good elements, like Mike, you were saying earlier, where Hollywood sort of made a movie that they didn't really realize what the message was that they were making, that it's actually showcasing that it's the government itself that is really the true threat to uh, to the citizens. I mean, they, they do sort of throw in the well, England might fall if we don't all band together, but uh, that sort of seems almost like tacked on uh, at the end to, to give it a little bit more of a setting for that final uh, ridiculous battle scene over at the beach. So I'm, I'm still, uh, unfortunately, going to give it a, a low score of the five arrows in the quiver. It's it's not a mark against you, Mike, at all. Um, <laughs> it's just that there's, there's not enough here to um, have it be a complete story for me. All right. All right. Well, good scores, gentlemen. Thank you very much. All right. Not so bad. Not so bad. And Mike, I hope that you can stick around a little bit longer because we do some more bonus content for the Patreon people. We call it Kathleen Turner Overdrive, and people can go to lastnighters.com slash Patreon for that. And Robert, we're going to do a perfect world next week with our friend Pete Quinones of the Kevin Costner movies. So in a way, it's sort of a continuation of this story where the Kevin Costner movie is a continuation of, of this uh, Robin Hood origin. And we're doing a Kevin Costner movie with our Kevin Costner guy, Piquinones of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, uh, doing the Kevin Costner movie, A Perfect World, which is one of Costner's like better movies. I mean, he was a big deal is it? in the 90s. And not all of his movies are good. Not, any, not many of them are great. I don't, I don't even think Kevin Costner debates that. What is the what is the the premise of this film? I don't even know. Well, I haven't seen it in so long. Uh, it came out probably twenty odd years ago, and I think he's sort of playing a villain. He's like an ex-con who encounters like a, a young kid who, through their wacky machinations, uh, the kid teaches him some life lessons. <laughs> I think okay. I could be totally wrong on this. All right, it's been so long. If but, it's not, if it's 90 minutes, it's already, I'm giving it an eight. Okay. I think it's longer than 90 minutes. So it's, it's, it's probably nice. in a seven, seven and a half territory for you. But we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. But anything lower than four hours is a step in the right direction. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just, just by default, just, just a relative sense of, all right, the last three movies have been three or four hours long. As long as it's close to two, it's automatically getting bonus points. That's right. That's understandable. Totally understandable. All right. Well, so that's the movie we're doing next week. And of course, um, people can check out that. And also the pre-show and post-show bonus content at lastnerds.com slash Patreon. Uh, Mike, we were on with you a couple of years ago for a uh, uh, an interview with you. And uh, I, I felt like the, the interview we just did with Keith Knight of Don't Tread on Anyone, we sort of repeated a lot of our origin story that we went over with you. Um, but we get to talk about movies in the Keith Knight one. So I would recommend to people they check out both. So I'll put, of course, all of that on the show notes page. And I'm, I'm actually surprised that, Mike, we haven't had you on like for a movie before this. And it's because it took so long for us to like actually get this 
um, together, though we have done shows with you in the past when we did the um, the State of the Libertarian Union talk show. Yeah. Which, of course, had a great acronym. Uh, and it got uh, shut down on YouTube um, with no explanation whatsoever several years ago. And I, I, I wonder if it had to do with some of the discussions we had about um, things in Parkland, Florida and tactics and uh, things that should have been done instead. Uh, I, I, I kind of suspicions around that, but, um, I think it was the acronym. (laughs) I'm not kidding. You think so? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, it's been a lot of fun having you on and, uh, we will be back next week with the great Pete Quinones for a perfect world with Kevin Costner, of course. And, uh, we will see you guys all next week for that one. And I will say good night from last night, everyone. And I just got to find the red button to sign us off. Peace out, everyone. Good night.